Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Lisa Abia-Smith, director of education at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art and senior instructor in the School of Planning, Public Policy, and Management in the UO's College of Design. Her, her research interests include arts and healthcare, marginalized communities, art education, disability studies, museum studies, and arts management. Before coming to U of O, she was a visiting assistant professor of art education at SUNY Buffalo from 1995 to 1997. While at SUNY Buffalo, Abia Smith created the nation's first concentration program in museum education for special needs for the master's degree of art education. She has served on Oregon's Department of Education's task force developing and updating Oregon's core content standards for the arts and has served as a reviewer and contributor for the Art Teacher Praxis Tests for Oregon. Abby Smith is also the author of Preparing the Mind and Learning to See, Art Museums as Training Grounds for Medical Students and Residents, published by Rutledge in 2015. Thanks, Lisa, for coming on the show. It's good to have you with us. Thank you, Paul. So first, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in art and museum studies. I think it really stems back to my mother, who is a theater professor. She received a PhD here, actually. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, in gerontology and theater therapy. So I grew up in a household where the arts were really ingrained as part of our daily life, and I think that really set me on my trajectory. Um, I ended up moving to San Francisco. My undergrad was in art and art history, and I spent a lot of time as an ESL tutor, mm. um, taking my peers to museums, trying to help them acquire English as a first language. So that, I think, put in my mind how museums can help us uh, improve our life. So tell us what it is that you do at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art. So I have an incredible position. I have a joint position. So I am considered a museum educator, which we think of as advocates for the public. So it's my passion and privilege to be able to forge connections between the object and the visitor. And that can take place through workshops, programs, or tours, or in some cases it could be a classroom curriculum or a poetry reading. So tell us in your view why um, art education is an important component of the museum's mission. Why is that an important thing for the JSMA to do? Well, the museum was founded as a way to bridge connections between cultures and really the paramount uh, responsibility of a museum is to try and educate the whole person. And the museum belongs to the citizens of Oregon. So a second grade child has the ownership of the collection and we really believe that the arts can help improve and bridge those connections curricularly, but also help the student develop um, as a whole person. So tell us a little bit about how the uh, JSMA serves K through 12 schools in Lane County. So we offer tours and post tours. Um, we also do a lot of time training teachers with professional development, giving teachers the tools to use art as a way to enhance their mathematics curriculum or their science curriculum. Um, we've been a part of a couple of wonderful research grants, including Stellar, which is funded by the U.S. Department of Education. Uh, so what that looks like is providing teachers with the opportunity to train with museum staff to learn how objects can tell a story and bridge connections. Um, we've created modules that teachers can use and access from across the globe if they're interested. So it's really, I think, the museum's mission to, to give teachers and students an opportunity to learn how art can embed with the curriculum. So let me ask you some follow-ups about that. So yeah. first of all, 
uh, how does art education help a math teacher? Uh, 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 I don't get that. How does that work? Yeah, so there's a lot of ways that I could describe it, I think, but I could s distill down to using art as a way to help us create languages and bridges. So there is a technique that we use called visual thinking strategies, uh, known as VTS, and it's a way to look at a subject matter such as math, where you are looking at an object or a math formula, and rather than looking at the student as a sponge or an empty vessel where you're giving them the information, it's looking and having inquiry, coming up with a hypothesis, and justifying your evidence. And that is a wonderful way to use art as a tool. It's a surrogate for looking at a poem or a math problem or a, a science issue. So you also mentioned the Stellar Project. So what is the Stellar Project? Tell us about that. Yeah, so Stellar started nine years ago, and it was a collaboration between the museum, the College of Education, and the Oak Ridge School District. And we developed a curriculum and a professional development for rural schools, particularly in Lowell, Oak Ridge, Cresswell. And we developed a program training teachers in this strategy of VTS. Um, it was an intervention to see if teachers would help improve literacy for their students. And four years later, the impact was tremendous. We saw math scores going up, but argument writing um, was improving. Mm. And it's this notion that, again, that art can help build these critical thinking skills. Um, the UO was funded a second grant with Stellar uh, to take those, those theories and put them into practice and develop modules so teachers from across the globe could then train in this practice, look at the museum's collection as well as art from around the world and use that as part of their toolkit to improve writing. So tell us a little bit about the, con the state of art education in, in uh, Oregon public school system, what's that like? Uh, it's, pr it's pretty grim. I think that that's where we come into play w as long as, you know, the, the Lane Arts Council as well. Um, there are not a lot of resources, even field trips were taken away even before COVID. It's very difficult to get financial support. So um, it's our role to, again, give teachers the opportunity to become familiar, um, provide services for free. Most of the programming that we do is funded by private support. So we are offering tours for free. We actually go into classrooms. We do a lot of remote programming. Art supplies are provided for free. It's really our mission to give that support to the deficit that's existing in Oregon schools. Do you, do, does the JSMA still um, transport or cover the cost of transporting students? We do, and it's a program called Fill Up the Bus. Um, it's been a little lean the past couple of years, but we are now looking at an uptick in that, and that's, again, donor support, providing uh, st students and teachers from across the state to come to the museum for free. And tell us about the New Art Northwest Kids program. So New Art Northwest Kids is a, an incredible exhibition that calls across the state for students to submit a work of art that's generally thematic. And so this year the theme was the places that we imagine. And we give these open-ended prompts, ask students to create a visual piece and a written piece to support that theme. Um, this year we had about 300 submissions. We selected 50. Um, and this has been going on for about 11 years. And it's a great way for us to, again, encourage uh, support from teachers to use this in their classroom and then also honor the students work and put it in a museum and be able to show the public how um, imagination is so apparent in our our children these days. So every year there's an exhibit of this work by these students from e the state of Every year, every year and it, sometimes we've had you know poems by Robert Frost that have influenced and again it was just a way for us to try and reach out to our community and show the importance of art as part of our daily life.
really interesting. Um, you, you, one of your areas of expertise is disability studies. So tell us a little bit about how the museum accommodates visitors with disabilities. Yeah, so we try and look at the, the world, the museum, as universally designed. And so we have a lot of uh, programs that are segregated. So on Saturdays, we are uh, funded by the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. They have a program called VSA Arts, which is specific for us to provide free art classes for children with disabilities and their caregivers, their parents. It's about 90 minutes. And this has been going on for about a decade. So those are very specific and, and segregated. But we also have programs for neurodivergent students. We have coming up again in the fall, a family day where children that might be neurodiverse could come into the museum. We dim the lights. We give them sensory bags. And we accommodate them where they are and how best they learn. Um, we also work with people that have visual impairments or might be considered totally blind. So we have tactile reproductions, um, we have audio guides that go around, and again, giving multi-sensory approaches to how we can encounter art with a disability. Or, you know, my belief is when we make these accommodations for someone with a disability, we only enhance the program for everyone else. So who doesn't like to touch a <laughs> three-dimensional Buddha or smell the lavender as you're looking for a painting? Hmm. Fascinating. Um, so there are many things that you're involved with, but tell us next about the Art Heals program. What's the Art Heals program? Yeah, so Art Heals is a large umbrella for the work that we do around well-being. And I thought about this the other day that this isn't something that started 10 years ago. I think we just never really named it, mm -hmm. this idea that the arts can help with our, our well-being. So uh, before COVID, we had been working uh, about three times a year with oncology patients. Mm -hmm. Um, providing workshops for them to help build resiliency and also just process illness. Um, we also were offering sessions for physicians and nurses uh, and children with disabilities. And then once the pandemic hit, everything moved to remote and we got a call from the hospital in Corvallis who said they could not continue their cancer support group. They didn't have the technology, they didn't know what the Zoom was, mm. and could we step in and continue to offer our, our services. And with that pivot, we began uh, about two years of weekly workshops where attendance was anywhere from 20 to 60 cancer patients or postpartum Latina mothers. Uh, we provide art supplies. We do guided facilitation where they're looking at art. But really, again, just building in time for decompression. Uh, art Heals is also working with med students. Mm -hmm. Uh, in 2016, a colleague of mine, Dr. Lambert, who teaches with me in 3 p.m., we created a study looking at how VTS could help improve acuity and empathy for med students. It was really impressive how observation skills were improving. Um, but OHSU reached back out to us and said, we love this idea that it's helping with visual acuity, but we are in a s position now where med students are also experiencing a high amount of stress. Mm -hmm suicides are increasing. Um, is there a way that you could develop a curriculum that could help us support that for the med students? Um, and it was at that point I met a, a physician named Dr. Elizabeth Lottie, who is a director of narrative medicine at OHSU. And narrative medicine is very similar to looking at art. There is a story that a patient has, mm -hmm. and there are metaphors and symbols. And this idea of looking at a piece of literature or art gives us a training of how we can best view our patients. So we began to Im, you know, embed this idea of narrative medicine, visual art to help improve resiliency for med students. 
Uh, we developed a curriculum using only BIPOC artists or artists of LGBTQT, and it was pretty significant. We just completed the study. Um, we'll be presenting our findings at the Sorbonne in June this year, but really impressive how this notion of curriculum with BIPOC artists can help improve implicit bias awareness, but also perspective taking. Mm -hmm. So Art Heals is a, a large umbrella. I mean, it ranges from working even with students um, in the counseling center or students in UO recovery, um, working with grad students in marriage and family therapy that are you know, also becoming caregivers and need time for resiliency. So this is the, the beauty of the museum, that we can find these intersections with so many different populations, but it just stems down to how can the arts help us heal ourselves but also become stronger as individuals. There's some connection between the Art of the Athlete program and Art Heals, isn't there? Would you tell us about that? Yes, yeah, certainly. So Art of the Athlete is another program that began about 10 years ago. Again, a way to give students, particularly student athletes, a time for decompression. Uh, you know, like so many students, you're not given permission to talk about stress or anxiety or, or mental illness. So Art of the Athlete became a way for students to come in, work with art, express with materials, but also intersect with our Children's with Disabilities program become mentors for them, also with our world of work where we work with high school students um, that can be first generation or at risk. So these intersections of Art of the Athlete only help improve these programs with our community and I think for us we've had a lot of stories with student athletes that have come in, they've ended up like dropping out of their sport or whatever and then stay in the museum and have become you know in the field of a museum studies or a gallery. We've also had instances of students of ours that have passed away and I, last summer I was teaching a class, Art and Human Values. One of my students tragically passed away and I was with him on a Zoom that day um, and that evening the students reached out and said, can we process this? Can we come in and figure out how to grieve? How can we honor him? And they quickly created this beautiful piece sort of putting down record what they remembered about him. And, mm. I'm not an art therapist, I'm not trained, but I think just giving space for art expression and I think that was one of the things with Art of the Athlete that we were able to be proud of. So uh, you just mentioned art therapy. What's the difference between that and what you do? Yeah, so art therapy is a clinician um, l looking at a patient and being able to work through and I would, you know, I would say that what we are doing is somewhat therapeutic, mm -hmm. but it certainly is a distinction. We are using art for expression and in some cases we do have sessions where we are working with people that might be triggered so on those occasions I will have a counselor or a therapist or even an art therapist present that can help supplement the work that, that I'm doing. Hmm. Um, you are also the author of the book Preparing the Mind and Learning to See Art Museums as Training Grounds for Medical Students and Residents so you've already sort of started to tell us a little bit about that but what's Give us a sense, if you can, of the, uh, the kind of snapshot argument of the book, but also why it was important for you to write this book. Why was that an important thing to do? I think so many times we have to justify why art. And I think looking at 
creating data and met metrics, how do we know this is a, uh, an effective method? So we, you know, I ventured onto this book because I'd seen so many med schools across the country, up to 20 that were working with museums. Mm -hmm. And I knew that if we wanted to continue this work, we needed to also implement and see how is this working for us at the Jordan Sensor Museum of Art. Mm -hmm. So we engaged in this one-year study. Uh, we had a board member that was a radiologist that helped us. Uh, we did some pre and post looking at brain scans and MRIs mm -hmm. before the workshop and after the workshop. And again, significant improvement of just being able to see aspects of an MRI that you didn't notice before. So it was really important for me, again, to give that literature, that data to be able to support why we are doing this and how it can help improve uh, patient care. That's so important and so fascinating. So you've also worked with the Northwest Narrative Medicine Collaborative, and you told us about what narrative medicine is, but tell us about how you've collaborated with that particular project. Yes, yeah, so they are a nonprofit organization that is run out of Portland, but have constituents from across the U.S. Uh, so what those look like are four-week trainings online for physicians and nurses and social workers to train in narrative medicine. So I've helped create a library for these workshops, a digital library that's been funded by the Oregon Humanities uh, Council. Uh, but it is a way for us, and particularly me, to help provide physicians with a way to look at you know, patient stories using art, again, to sit around, hear a different perspective, maybe perhaps pull back. And with narrative me medicine, it's that notion that we're not living in black and white. Uh, physicians are not being comfortable with the ambiguity pulling back and perhaps listening to someone else's perspective might even lead you to then when you're going into a clinician room to listen to your patient or pick up on non-verbal you know, verbal cues that you didn't notice before. So I have you know, the, the privilege of working and being a facilitator for these sessions uh, for about three weeks once a year. So I'm, you know, I'm really interested in this idea that this, the, that this uh, training that you give improves the way that doctors deal with patients. So one of the, I mean, any of us who have dealt with doctors probably in the past decade uh, are familiar with the experience of barely spending any time with the doctor. You know, you, you spend time with the, the, the nurse and the doctor comes in, talks to you for two minutes and is gone. You know, checks a box and mm -hmm. tells you so mm -hmm. this is what you need, bum. So how does this stuff you do change that? Yes, right. So we can't change the 15 minutes the insurance company is allowing for right. the physician with the patients. But what we can do is give them a way to reframe and pull back and think about how they are encountering their patient. Rather than just going through this robotic method, asking the questions, looking at the numbers, pulling back, looking at the tattoo. Is there a symbolism there that represents the cultural heritage? So then I can talk to you about, if I'm the physician, about your heritage. It's getting beyond that sort of robotic way and using as an art to really create and forge these connections. And the beauty of being able to work with the med students that are in their third year is this becomes a part of their professional practice. This becomes you know, embedded into their training and what we've heard, particularly with this last study, is they are so hungry for these deep connections. They see what happens with their older peers that are burnt out mm -hmm. and are feeling as if they, don't e they can't even engage, that there's a lot of you know, disdain for the, the medical system and the healthcare system. So this gives them a way to think about creating a better contact, and art becomes a surrogate for that. So this integration of these methods into medical education it's a benefit not only because 
it helps the medical student deal with the stress of being in medical school. But also, you, your argument is that after they come out of medical school, it makes them a better practitioner. Certainly, it all leads to better patient care, and that is really the goal, that this training gives them tools, but in the end, that the patient is heard, particularly if it's a person that might be a person of color or someone that's considered you know, marginalized, that they have a role in their healthcare process, they feel as if they've been validated and heard. This creates access for them as patients, but the end result is, there's better patient care and outcomes for the patient. And you said there's, you have done studies that demonstrate this with evidence. With, with evidence, and we'll be able to share that in June, but we've just completed the data analysis over the past year. We taught 750 med students, third year, tested this curriculum. We had them for about 150 minutes, and the in investigation was to look at, does this improve your perspective taking? Does this improve your implicit bias awareness? And we're seeing up to 60% of those med students change their perspective or feel as if this is giving them a different way to think about their patients or a deeper connection with, with, with their patients. So do they, t should they fill out a survey? Is that how you? Yeah, so they fill out a survey. This is part of a, a two-week what we call intercessions that happen between terms at the med school and they are thematic. Um, one is cognitive impairment, one is um, pain. So they fill out a pre sort of assessment, asking them questions on, on a scale. Um, we engage with them for a period of two weeks, and then we do a post-questionnaire. Hmm, really, it's just so interesting. Um, you've already said something about uh, the impacts of the pandemic on the, the, the way you do your work and at the JSMA. Um, and, you know, we're, things have returned to normal <laughs> in many ways. Yeah, no but um, some of the things that we've learned during the pandemic uh, were continuing. So tell us about those aspects of what, especially about what you do at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum. How has this um, sort of crisis uh, experience of mastering all these technologies, how has that changed what you do and how, how has it improved if it has improved what you do? Oh, this has risen to the top. I, I think one of the things I'm doing, I teach a class called Inclusive Museum Practice for undergrads and, and grad students. And yesterday we had a lecture with an inclusion specialist from the NASA Space Center in Houston. And we had the same dialogue that during the pandemic, all of the programs were on Zoom and remote and we were able to create such access for people that might have transportation barriers or physical barriers. And those museums that have, you know, gone back to normal and let go of that have immediately reduced the, the number of audiences they could be serving. Mm -hmm. So for us at the JSMA, we are embracing this notion that we still can have an experience. We may not be in front of the actual object, but if we could at least provide a program or a live experience, they feel as if they are part of this museum experience. So those museums, particularly our museum, that's continuing to operate in that idea, we will be inclusive and responsive to those that may not be able to put the foot in the door this week or next month. Um, you just mentioned that you teach this class. So you teach classes in 3 p.m. Yes. So I tell us, um, you just mentioned one class. Tell us about another one of the classes that you Yeah, teach. so 3 p.m. is my academic home. Um, I teach art and human values. I also teach a class on museum education. I teach a, I teach a class on visual literacy. 
Mm -hmm. uh, so for undergrads, uh, so f and I also teach occasionally for the College of Ed, mm -hmm. uh, an integrated youth arts curriculum methods class. So it's really you know a good opportunity for me to teach all undergrads or grads how arts can help us again improve our life to to make connections between content that we may not be familiar. You know, I have a beautiful position of putting theory into practice and being able to work alongside students and show them the museum as a resource has just been, you know, a really benefit to my career. Tell us more specifically about one of those classes, just any one of them. So uh, I'll talk about the inclusive museum practice and giving students an opportunity to look at museums as agents of social change. Um, looking at how museums can help us with memory, how museums can help us understand um, s issues in our society that might not be you know, comfortable to talk about. So we investigate how museums are not neutral and how museums can make a stance. So students identify models of best practice. I have them do a lot of field work where they critique. Um, they could look at a museum label, even our museum, mm -hmm. and look at how perhaps a hierarchy is there or there might just be one voice and have them revise that label and provide multiple voices, helping us to decolonize what we think about museums. So for me, it's, you know, that is an example of how I teach, giving students an opportunity to be in the field and look at putting, again, theory into practice. Do they, I mean, if, okay, you've just described they might rewrite the, the, you know, the, label. the label. Do you then change the labels in the museum? We do change the labels in the museum. The, I think the beauty of having a director like John is he is quite responsive. I think museums that are listening to their audiences and not so caught up in ego that can be re reflexive are those that will succeed. And I'm really proud that our museum does take into, into, into fruition how people are learning and, and, where, and where we're failing. So let me just say, you mentioned John, so that's John Weber, the director of the Jordan Schnitzer Museum. Uh, there's an interview that I've done with him on our, our, our archive of interviews. Um, you, um, are you also an artist? Do you practice art? Do you make art? Yes, yeah, so I, I started my youth painting and becoming an artist. I was an art major in college, um, had children, so things kind of went on hiatus. But the past five years, uh, I've realized I also don't want to be a hypocrite. I keep talking about how art can help us. So I've been able to carve out space. So I'm a painter. Uh, I went to art school in France and studied painting and have been working a lot with my watercolors. So you didn't say, you didn't tell us much about the way that you, um, members of the community who come here to the museum, how they, you work with them to make art. Yes, yeah. so we have a studio in the museum. It's about 1,200 square foot, and we have a, a kiln as well. So a lot of the work that I do is giving visitors an opportunity to experiment with materials that might be on display. Again, demystifying what it means to experiment with lithograph or printmaking or watercolors. Again, giving a place for the doing. You know, John Dewey, we learn better by doing. So giving the visitors an opportunity to respond that way with their hands. So. Um, Tell us how, if people have been listening to this interview and, and they're really excited about these programs, how can they help you? How can they help? Well, they can help us by, one, coming to the museum programs. We have a whole series I didn't even tell you about mindfulness meditation, where visitors can come in and engage in a mindfulness workshop. Or they could volunteer. We are always looking for people to help support us and help us do the good work that we're doing. So they could certainly email us. They can find me on the, on the website. But I think look at museums as a part of your social and leisure time. Come, 
give us a try. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Lisa, on that great note, I want to thank you for joining us. It's been wonderful talking to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been speaking with Lisa Abia-Smith, Director of Education at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art and Senior Instructor in the School of Planning, Public Policy, and Management at the University of Oregon. Thanks so much for watching.